0: I would say tonight, as it with any. Please don't just believe me. Don't just ever assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Test everything by the word of God. Everything, not just what I say. We're roughly at about a thousand BC, so that's roughly about three thousand years ago. During that time, there was a king, and his name was David. He's considered the greatest king that has ever lived until our Savior Jesus Christ. He is from this king David. All of the. Uh, all the lineage of the Messiah that Jesus himself would come from comes and is traced back to this king from a promise that was made, a covenant that was made with him back in 2 Samuel 8. But we know as kids, if you're the kind that ever went to sort of Sunday school, you kind of know the David and Goliath story. That's sort of the story we all... because, And, and as kids, that makes sense. We're the little kid. Uh, some of you are it haven't changed much. But the, there, there is this concept that, you know, the world seems so big and frightening and gigantic. And then there's, then there's us, where this tiny little speck. So we love stories like David and Goliath, where this little guy, through the power of God, takes this invincible enemy down with something that seems completely nonsensical, other than the fact that God had ordained it. But as we get older, we struggle with other Goliaths. And because we struggle with other Goliaths, like, for instance, loneliness, or just the idea of where we fit in into the world. Well, all of a sudden, there's a whole new story that erupts that people tend to gravitate to, and that tends to be the story of David and Bathsheba. She is a daughter of one of his bodyguards. She is married. She's married to that bodyguard. She is the granddaughter to one of his chief counselors, Ahithophel, and she happens to be, her name means, Daughter of a covenant. There's nothing about that 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 should lead David to this place where he thinks he has any right to her, but he invades her house, if you will. He, in, in essence, steals her away from her husband and then has him killed and then defiles the household by doing so. But God is not going to let David get away with that. In the book of Galatians, God makes really simply clear, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. I mean, it's a pretty simple concept. If you are planting peach, peach pits and you got an apple tree out of it, you just did a freak of nature. That kind of thing just doesn't happen. And he says, you can either sow to the flesh or you can sow to the spirit. But you are going to reap. Now, there's good news and bad news to that. It all depends on what you're reaping if what you are actually intending on reaping is that which is bad, that which is of the flesh, that which is of your selfish nature or my selfish nature, well, then certainly we're going to reap corruption and destruction. But if we sow to the Spirit and our surrender to the living God, we'll reap eternal life. So it all depends on, well, what you want to put behind the plow. Well, David, in this situation, has certainly sown, and he's sown a very bad seed. Doing that, David would tell us in his own psalms, 71 of the psalms of the 150 psalms we have in the book of Psalms are written, clearly denoted as written by David. David said, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. My vitality dried like the drought of summer. What he makes clear is, though you would not have seen it perhaps on the outside, David was crumbling on the inside. This sin was killing him from the inside out. Now, David would write in his psalms that people would look at him and actually say a a disease sticks to him. So it sounds like he was in bad enough shape that it was manifesting on the outside. But God in his love for him busts him. Now understand, sometimes the most loving thing God can do is nail you. Because David had been hiding this. So, God exposes it through a parable. He brings in a prophet named Nathan, by the way his name means gift of God and Nathan comes in and he says as a king would he was sort of the final court he was sort of the final judge within the uh, the nation so if there was a case that seemed too difficult and you've gone to the house of appeals if you will he was the final say so with that you would go to David and Nathan does the same thing he goes here's a situation I need you to pass a judgment on there was this guy, and he had everything. He was rich, and he just had, he just, you know, everything about him was Rolls-Royce and, and Lexus and Bentleys, and the guy just had an endless supply of anything that he wanted. But there was a guy that seemed to live next door that was the opposite. He was just a guy that had one sheep. He really didn't have anything else. And he seemed to have it even longer than his kids, and was raised as a, as a pet. And this rich man had a visitor. The guy came and visited him. And this rich man, instead of looking at the surplus that he had to sacrifice an animal for their dinner, instead he goes and he steals this man's sheep. He invades his house. He takes what isn't his and he defiles it in doing so. David is furious. And by the way, there are a few things that become more wrathful than a guilty conscience. You probably know that. So David pulls out the full, four, you know, if you will, four-finger grip of the law, and he says, listen, this guy needs to suffer. He needs to die for it. Strange punishment for a guy that stole a guy's sheep. But then he says, and he's going to restore fourfold. Now that's important because the full extent of the law is if someone stole from you, uh, for instance, such a thing as a lamb, the, the payment of that, was fourfold. You gave a guy, if you stole his lamb, you gave him four lambs in return. And that, that makes you less of a victim when the whole thing's over. And then ultimately, this prophet, Nathan, turns to this David, the problem is, you're the man in the story. And you had everything but this one thing, this guy's wife, and you invaded his house. You took what wasn't yours, and you defiled the house in doing so. And David goes, You're right. I'm guilty. And it's a rare person that can do that, by the way. You're probably aware of that. A person that can actually tell you they're wrong. Now, sometimes they'll tell you they're wrong, but with kind of a, an addendum to it. You know what I mean? I'm Like, I was wrong, but this is why it wasn't so wrong. I was stressed. I was hangry. I was whatever, you know. And we come up with these things. But in the end of it all, really, the only thing that we need to say is, you're right, I was wrong. And Nathan says, the good news is God isn't going to kill you for it. Even though had you been God in this situation, you would have killed the guy for it. Let's be honest. You just said that. But you are going to pay the bill. So David is cashing in on the bill himself, payment by payment, four payments. David starts with the child that was actually born, if you will, to this woman as he then, after having her husband killed, marries her. The child dies. That's the first of his four-point installments second then his oldest his oldest naming Amnon, rapes his half-sister the half-sister has a full brother named Absalom who in response to that takes justice in his own hands becomes if you will a vigilante and kills the brother David has now lost two children the firstborn of Bathsheba and his firstborn altogether then in his third payment we see start to see it here we see this Absalom after the rapist brother was vindicated by his half-blood brother Absalom, the full brother to this, the victim Tamar, he is now seeking to kill his dad. David is running for his life because this boy has raised up for himself now an army to kill his dad to take over his throne. And that's where David is in the story now. And the hard part about it is people are going to go mental on you. You're probably aware that we live in a city But there's a difference between when a person goes mental on you and it still hurts and it's still still painful. If you were sitting on a bus and a total stranger came in and just started screaming. I don't know if you've ever had that situation. For whatever reason, I'm usually big enough that most people don't pick me out in the crowd for that. But if you were the kind of person and someone did that, you would go to sleep that night and you would kind of almost have as if they threw up on you, if that makes sense. No matter how much you scrub, you're still going to feel it's on you. But at least you have a clean conscience to go, well, at least I didn't do anything wrong. I was just crazy. But when someone goes mental on you and you have a guilty conscience and you're trying to deal with that guilty conscience, it's a very different night altogether. And David now being persecuted by his own son. Oh, David's in a very, very mixed place. And what David, again, is doing is he's reaping out. Here's the good and the bad news of it. If we go through as much as is intended, which will be miraculous, let me, let me remind you that, we're going to see that God doesn't just allow what is bad to be reaped, but also what has been good, too. Just because you've done something stupid does not mean that God is not allowing the things that you've planted that have been good to bear forth fruit. The lives you've invested and the people that you've sought to bless. God doesn't forget those things. So with that in mind, look at verse 13. We'll develop a couple quick verses and we'll move through a lot of this text. Now a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom, Remind you that's David's son. Verse 14 says, David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us. And strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now, notice David, the fighter to whom they sang the songs, he has slain his tens of thousands, sees imminent danger, not just for himself, but for the people that are with him and for the city that he lives in. And because of that, David knows that his best option here is not to engage in battle. First of all, he doesn't want to kill the guy that wants to kill him because it's his own son. But also, when engaging that, he's going to risk an awful lot of other people here that were completely innocent to David's sin. Now, David, by the way, does have a very soft spot for this Jerusalem. In Psalm 137, verses 5 and 6, five and six, David says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. And David was a harpist. The idea would be, you know, let me forget how to play my instrument. And also, if I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. David, during this time of fleeing, will write Psalm 3. And I challenge you this week, if you get a chance, Get alone and read that psalm. What David has to go through and what he has to resolve, which ultimately will bring him peace in it. So David said to his servants, let's get out of here. With that then, verse 15, the king's servants said to the king, well, we're your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. David is fleeing with a batch of people. Then the king went out with all of his household after him and the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all of the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all of the servants passed before him, all of the Cherethites and the Pelatites, and all of the Gittites, six hundred men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. Now, I don't know about you, but when was the last time you ran into a Cherethite, or for that matter, I had any idea? I don't know what a Cherethite is and where is Kerith that you would find Cherethites. Well, scripturally, for what it's worth, they're mentioned ten times. Of the ten times, the Cherethites, seven of those times are mentioned with these Pelatites. In the simplest conclusion to it is that they were, in essence, mercenaries that David hired. They were sort of Navy SEALs. They were the Delta Force. So so help me out here. Here in England, what would we call a group like that? What's the, the kind of crack Delta Force here? What are they called? The S.A.s? S.A.S. Not S.A., because, you know, like S.A.s like, hey, S.A., what's up, man? Okay, S.A.S., yes. Special Armed Service or something, or I don't know, a secret something, and we'll kill you if we tell. Sorry, I didn't mean to make you nervous. All right, well, I mean, that's the idea, is that D- these were David's bodyguards. These were, in essence, David's closest men. But what's interesting is it wasn't just Kurthites and Polisites. Notice it was also Gittites. Now, this isn't like, Gittites! Mm! Gittites were people from Gath, which was a Philistine country. Interesting that David has men from an enemy country that has joined his crew that David actually trusts with his own life. That's something to be said. Then the king went to Ittai, the Gittite. I remind you, here is another guy who is from Gath. Now, Ittai, for what it's worth, means nearness. He's mentioned only here, and in chapter 18, he commits late, but we're going to find that he's faithful. It tells us here, why David David turns to this guy, he's one of the Gittites, and he says, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you're a foreigner, and also an exile from your own place, and in fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and peace be with you. Now, David's given the guy a way out. He's from Gath and he's like, you know what? We kind of just met yesterday. Yesterday was a very different world than today is. Today I'm fleeing from my life. Yesterday I was kind of king of the world. Today I'm actually running from a guy who's taken the place. He wants me dead. And why would I want to drag you into that craziness? Now, what would you do if you were in this situation? would you say okay we're good now face it what david is doing is he's giving you a really gentle way out he's certainly saying you know what i'm not going to diss you or look down on you or even be disappointed if you left right now it seemed like that's the logical thing to do but you're aware as a christian somebody who follows a living god the easy way is almost always not the right way interesting the guy's a foreigner and that reminds me of somebody else in a very similar situation. And that's the book of Ruth, David's great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother. If you remember, she's a Moabitess, also considered an enemy of the state, who goes back with her mother-in-law, and her mother-in-law turns to her. She had two sons. The two sons had married, and she happens to be one of those daughters. And she turns to them both. The other's name is Orpah, and she says, Hey, girls, look, you're still young, you're still fine. Loose paraphrase. You're still young. You're still fine. Go and get yourself a good Moabite, man. You girls are Moabites. Go and do it. It would be like 300 years ago, girls c- c- bringing French girls back to England. You know. Anyways, you get the idea. So, I mean, in and so you know, if it's like, no, nah, I really shouldn't do that. Okay, and off she goes. But Ruth says, you know what? I am committed to you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your God will be my God. And where you die, that's where I'm going to be buried. She's like, I commit to you for the rest of my life. And what's interesting is that God doesn't have a problem no matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter how the crew that you were with seemed to be so openly declaring war on God. If you were actually willing to surrender that to him, he's actually willing to take you in. And I see that with Ruth, who becomes a great-grandmother, if you will, of David. And I see that here with this Ittai, the Gittai. Let me tell you about what happens to this guy. A little bit of a spoiler alert on the guy. But ultimately, David will have to engage in battle, or at least his men will, and they break up into three ranks. He has his commander, Abner, uh, uh, and then he has his commander's brother Joab. Then he has his brothers. Uh, then he has the brothers. I'm sorry, his commander's brother Abishai. But the third group he actually gives to this guy, Gittite, the Gittite, which tells me that though this guy was new, though this guy was a foreigner and he would have in essence been an enemy, his open declaration of surrender of his past to follow David made him, a, in, in essence, a priceless asset to David's army. So much so that David would entrust not only his own life, but the life of all of his men and a third of his army to this guy. That says a lot. So no matter where you've come from, that doesn't mean God couldn't pull you in and use you in ways greater than you can imagine if you're willing to let him. But you've got to hand him where you come from. That becomes the problem. And so we say, hey, God's got to take me for who I am. Well, you better take God for who he is. And he is a person-reinventor. So if you're, going to hand him, if you're going to hand yourself to him as you are and tell God he has no right to change you, you're not accepting him as Lord. Well, in this situation now, David tries to talk him out of it. The king says to Atai, the Gittite, why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile in your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us? since I go, I don't know where. And look at mercy and truth. Just bless you. Verse 21 says, But Ittai answered the king, and he said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place the lord the king will be, shall be, whether in death or in life, even there also your servant will be. And so here's the situation. He's openly declared it. So David says to Ittai, Go and cross over. Now he's not saying go away and cross over. David is crossing over the Kidron brook. And so he's saying, All right. Go and cross over with the rest of them. You're welcome to the family in essence. Now what is interesting, the brook he's crossing here is the brook between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And he's leaving, apparently according to this, he's crying and he's barefoot. David is not leaving, putting on his nicest outfit, that's for sure. And it's interesting because 2,000 years later, our Savior would cross that same brook the opposite direction after being arrested, stripped naked, beaten, and hung on a cross. and and that same brook would still be there. matter of fact, Kidron means dark. And the reason it means dark is it was the sewer system for Jerusalem. So David had to cross over, I mean the king walking through the sewer system in essence to go and escape. But then my Savior, God in the flesh, crossing through that sewer system where the blood of lambs was being shed while the Lamb of God was walking through that to go and sacrifice for me. So he goes and says, welcome to the family in essence, come with me. So it says then, in verse 23, all of the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook And all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now there was also Zadok. It says that Zadok also, with the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they set down the Ark of God. And Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I have found favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no delight in you, well then here I am. Let him do to me as it seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? It's a prophet. Return to this city in peace. And your two sons who are with you, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, carried the Ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. David is now starting to plant. Now, notice, as David is fleeing, one of the first things God does is he introduces him to allies. Did you notice that? People that are actually on his side, because when somebody goes mental on you, especially someone you know, it is really easy to feel alone, isn't it? I mean, even if it's just someone you barely knew, it's so isolating when someone goes that crazy on you. I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever wanted you dead like this or actually tried to kill you. But here in this case, understand where David's going through. And God's like, you know what? I'm going to let you know you are not in this alone. First of all, here is a guy that is willing to leave his entire world to follow you, David. And there are 600 other men who are clearly dedicated to you. But then there's also these two guys, these priests, now, Abiathar, for what it's worth, he came from the town, if not, from, perhaps you're familiar, when David had lied, taken the sword of Goliath when he was fleeing from Saul, and then Saul, in his rage, killed every priest there but this guy. But then there was this other guy, Zadok. Zadok, by the way, becomes the priest that when people return back to the land, back at that point then, in the 500s AD, or 500s BC, I'm sorry, that when they returned back, they have to go and go, who do we give as our new high priest? Who do we go now? How do we ordain priests with all of these Kohenites? And what they do is they actually look back and they say, well, David's high priest was a guy named Zadok. And so they found the family of Zadok, which would be called Zadokites. It's where we get the term Sadducee in the New Testament from. They were direct descendants initially from this guy Zadok. That's where that comes from. So David looks and the ark has come with him. And David goes, Whoa, 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 well, that ark belongs in Jerusalem. The ark does not belong with us. And David, again, you could see him conflicted because you could see him going, I don't know, maybe this is God still really punishing me for all of this. I deserve this. So go ahead and go back. But you guys, I know you guys, I, I know I can trust you. So I need you guys to go in there. You each have a son. So whatever my son, Absalom, is going to try to do, could you guys then run this sort of grapevine thing, if you will, you know, to me, so that I can, you know, you find out, tell your sons, have them come tell me. So at least I know what's going on. In other words, David now has moles in Absalom's territory. So, David went up, verse 30. To the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up with his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. They are all mourning as if they would something that had died. Then someone told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel, I remind you, was David's closest counselor. Again, also though, Bathsheba's grandfather. It is from this, David would write in Psalm 41.9 where he says that even my own familiar friend whom I trusted, whom I broke bread with, has lifted his heel against me. Of course, you're probably familiar that this will be quoted by John because this is what Jesus had experienced with Judas. So David's response, "O oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And David knew, by the way, that Ahithophel's counsel was usually a really solid thing. And now David recognizes in that that, he's got a, that Absalom's got a ringer. He's got somebody who really knows what he's doing, but God doesn't let him go long. Look at verse 32. Now what happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he had worshipped God, where, I'm sorry, he worshipped God? Stop. Could you do that then? Could you worship God at this moment? What, could I worship God at this moment when one of my kids wants to kill me because they want what I have? And somehow I feel like, to be honest, I really deserve it because of the things I've done. This is just, in essence, me becoming my comeuppance for it. Could I, in a moment like this, when obviously I would imagine this is the worst day of David's life, where at this moment, could you fall down on your knees and say, God, you're still good? Please understand, you don't have to understand the situation to understand that God is good and that he's bigger. Sometimes it is hard because we have a sense of justice and we're trying to figure it out. And we ask God the crazy question, why? And we want to know why. Why didn't that work out? Why did that person get like that? Why did it unfold this way? But do you really think that anything God does is only on one level? Like, do you really think that God can tell you that any, any pebble he throws into the pond is only going to leave one ripple? If God were to explain all of the different things that come from the result of that one thing, I think our brains would explode. And, and God does not, you know, He's I remind you, he's our Lord, so he doesn't owe us an explanation. And there are times where we like, you know, this really Stinks. This really hurts. This sucks. I hate this. God, where are you? Why this? And at that moment, you've now sat down in the theater of the enemy of accusation who's now throwing accusation after accusation. And you know this. If you sit down to listen to the enemy for a moment, he'll give you the whole show. And by the time you're done, you're angry and hating God and hating anything that has to do with him if you're not careful. Because... You don't understand. Do we understand even the concept of how big our universe is? You know, have, you, have the scientists told you that it's expanding? Uh, does it, can anyone wrap around their head around the fact that the universe is like empty space? So what's on the end of empty space? Is there like a wall? Is there? And so, of course, we're being told the universe is expanding. Do you know what that means? That means we've discovered it's bigger than we thought it was. So, how do we answer that? Well, I guess it's getting bigger. Well, maybe it's just infinite, and we just can't figure that. We can't wrap our head around that. And the only reason I say that is God is so much bigger, and He's working on so many levels. And it's like, you know, I I don't. There are going to be some things we will never understand on this side of heaven, and they will seem unfair, and they'll seem cruel, and they'll seem unkind. But I know my God is good. And I know that he's good even when I don't understand what's going on. And hey, we've all been kids. And there are times where our parents, if you've had any decent parents in any sense, have pulled you out of something that seemed quite dangerous and all we could see was the restriction of the moment. We couldn't see any of the impending danger. All we thought, man, you're so uncool. I can't believe you do that. You know, I thought you loved me. When really, truth be told, they love us by not letting us do it. And the only reason I say that is, as kids, we can look back now and realize we didn't understand, so we thought the opposite. That our ex- parents were actually being decent. They were being good, but we were too involved in the situation to see the goodness in it. And the reason I say that is, is I guarantee you when we stand before God, it's all going to make sense. Well, in this situation, David now, at the worst day of his life, if you will, he's crying. He's barefoot. His head is covered like someone died. And in that now, David falls on the top of the Mount of Olives, the same place where Jesus will ascend from. He starts to worship God. Now, what you you certainly couldn't be worshiping God because of your circumstances, could you? You couldn't say, oh, God, I want to thank you for... What? Thank you that my kid hasn't killed me yet. Thank you that my chief counselor hasn't really got the army yet. Thank you that... Well, I've got a few guys with me. Thank you for that. Or does he just go, God, I don't understand, but I know this. You're still good. And I've learned this. When you do that, all of a sudden, the whole thing changes a bit. Well, so David worships. And as David is worshiping, there comes a guy named Hushai. Look at it with me then, verse 32. There was a Hushai the Archite coming to meet him with a robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, then you'll become a burden to me. How does that make you sound? I kind of get the idea David's not in a perfect frame of mind. Imagine, he's like, come on, let me come with you. And you're like, you know, it would just be a burden to me. Thanks, man. I was just trying to help you out. He goes, but if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I'll be your servant, O king, as I was with your your father's servant previously, So I will now also be your servant. Well, then you can defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Notice, David learns about Ahithophel. He worships and God solves the problem. Did you notice that? He's like, oh my goodness, he's got this amazing counselor now. I'm dead. God, I trust you anyways. And God goes, well, then let me take care of it. And he goes, let me bring somebody that can totally take care of that guy. I love it when God works it out. Sometimes, to be honest, I think God wants to do that so much more than we let him. Well, we're too busy getting in his way because we're too busy actually not worshiping and instead stepping in and trying to fix a problem we aren't equipped to fix. Well, David says, look, why don't you go there and actually, in essence, be second counsel against, be the second advice against Ahithophel. Verse 35, and You don't? Do you not have Zadok and Abiathar the priests alone there with you? Therefore, it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. And indeed... They have been with them, their two sons. They have with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, which, by the way, means, by the way, a clinging brother, Zadok's son, it also could mean angry brother, Uh, and Yonathan, which means God's grace, Abithar's son. And by them you shall send send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. But don't miss this. This is how our first chapter ends, and we may not get that far. I'm sure you already figured that out. But this is how it's, this, and as David is fleeing, God starts bringing in allies. He brings the two priests, the two high priests, for which then David will send back in. They become informants. They both have sons. They become the runners. And then he has this guy, Hushai, who will, by the way, then be by the new king, his son, Absalom's side, to give counsel. So he'll hear it all. He'll hear it all, be able to tell the priests and he can even go I mean let's face it he goes into the tabernacle it just looks like the guy's worshipping he has no idea that this whole thing's happening uh, Absalom so then he goes they tell the priest the priests tell their sons the sons go tell David and David knows how to get the way out so God starts with this is what you have you've got these five assets if you will but now we have three really really ugly if you will an axis of opposition in our next chapter Verse one, it says, when David was a little past the top of the mountain, he had just gotten past the place where he worshipped. There's a guy and he shows up and his name is Ziba. Now, Ziba, for what it's worth, means important station. The idea is somebody that tries to get in the spotlight, you know, guys like this, or girls like this. You know, it's like no matter where it is, they want to make sure they're not photo bombing. They're actually trying to step in front to be the, the subject of the photo. Well, that's this guy. Now, we met him way back in 2 Samuel 9 when David was trying to show kindness to one of Saul's uh, grandsons, Jonathan's son, named Mephibosheth. And he says, is there anyone that I could still show kindness to the guy that was the king before me? And he goes, well, there's this guy, he's lame in his feet, uh, and Ziba was his servant. But Ziba, by the way, according to chapter 9, verse 10, had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba was doing okay for himself. And so David says to Ziba, Ziba... I want you to take care of that household for him. You are now responsible for this boy's house. And he takes this guy who would have been his enemy, Mephibosheth, and he takes him into his own house, brings him to his table, and has him eat as one of his sons. In essence, David has adopted this boy. So now Ziba has seen the opportunity, David is fleeing, and you know how this is. You're having a rough day, and lo and behold, someone just wants to jump in your grill at a moment like this, and you are so unready for it. So David was a little past the top of the mountain. There was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple saddled donkeys. And on those 200 loaves of bread, a 100 clusters of raisins, a 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Great gift. The king said to Ziba, well, what do you mean with all of these? Why are you giving me all this? Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruits are for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, hey, well, wait a minute. Aren't you supposed to be taking care of that Mephibosheth fellow? Where's your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, All that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. David, in a judgment for that, hearing this, by the way, appears to be a lie. He says, Oh, what? That guy betrayed me after all the nice stuff I've done for him? Well, find all of his stuff is yours now. So Ziba says, I humbly bow before you, that I may find favor in your sight. Oh Lord, my king, my lord, O oh king. The first of our three characters is this guy, Ziba. And think about what happened. What he did is, in essence, he falsely exposed the household so that he could seize his goods. Listen to it again. He falsely exposed the household so that he could seize the goods. Second guy. Now, King David came to Bahurim. God makes really simple uh, clarity that this is... I mean, have you, any of you been to Bahurim? There was a man from the family of the house of Saul as well, second guy from that family, and his name was Shimei. He's the son of Gera, and he came from there, and he came out cursing continuously as he came. And he threw stones at David, and all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men who were in the right hand and to his left. In other words, the guy's just throwing stones at anyone that's near David. Also, Shimei said when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue the Lord has brought upon you all the, blood, all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the, the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. He's cursing the king. Now Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, that's one of David's commanders, the brother of the chief commander, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Let him curse. Because the Lord said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life? How much more now this Benjamite? Oh, let him alone, let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction, and that the Lord will repay me good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shemai went along the hillside opposite him. Boy, as if life wasn't rough enough, you got this goof now standing on a ridge as you walk, yelling horrible things at you can't even get your head together. So like, you're a this, and you're a that. It's all condemnation. And he threw stones at him, kicked up dust. And now the king and all the people who were with him became weary. Wouldn't you become weary from this? How long before? I mean, have you ever had a troll? You know, I'm talking about you know, on the internet, you know, some, someone for whatever reason doesn't like your tweet or whatever. And I mean, how, how does that affect you? Imagine if that were happening over and over and over. Or you were just getting consistent phone calls from someone. Well, now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, and so they refreshed themselves there. Now, first guy, Ziba, he in essence exposes a household to take its goods. Now you have this guy, and what we read is that the guy is cursing David, but what God made special note of is the place where this happened. And the place where this happened, can anyone tell me, it's in verse 5, what's the name of the place where this happened where David encountered this guy? Bahurim. Yeah, excellent. Bahurim by the way means macho men. Yeah, isn't macho macho men. Well, do I ever see this place prior? Because if God makes mention of it, it must be important. Actually, yeah. Back in chapter 3 of this of the same book, 2nd Samuel. David, when being restored to his kingdom, if you will, or being, actually seizing his kingdom, demands that a woman that was engaged to him and that he had been with now be restored back to him. And her name is Michal, happens to be Saul's daughter. Interesting, because David won that girl by taking down Goliath. I find that interesting, because how did David take down Goliath? With well, a stone, the same thing that's being thrown at him now. They're not hurting him that we see here, but it sure is wearing him out. But here's the most amazing part to me, is that this guy, I'm sorry, this, this daughter, Michal, well, she's already married to someone else. And if she's married to this other guy, I mean, as sad as it is, it really appears, his name for, the, for what it's worth is Paltiel. he's from Naish, the guy really seemed like he was really into Michal. So what happened is they drag Michal away from her husband and he's following, crying. This guy is crying because you're taking his wife from him. And as he's as, you know, and as they're dragging Michal back, this this guy said, like, Please don't take my wife, please don't take my wife until they get to here Bahurim. And here at Bahurim, then David's commander says, Shut up and go home or I kill you. And that guy goes, and he leaves. Now listen, the first guy, Ziba, exposes a house to take its goods. The second guy starts to appear where, where a wife was pulled from a husband. And who is this happening to? David? That's a little bit interesting, isn't it? Because what David did is that he exposed the house to invade it, to take its stuff, and he took a woman from her husband and then he defiled the house well can you see how what David has reaped is not coming back at him and the horrible part about it is though God has forgiven him he's still reaping what he played out Look, if you go mental and you just go and get drunk and you do crazy stuff and you run in front of a train and you get your leg ripped off and then you repent and you call out to God, well, he will forgive you, but you're still not going to have a leg. It isn't like God owes you your leg back because you were dumb. And me too, by the way. That's not just you. But then there's our third person. Notice what it says. Meanwhile, verse 15. The good news is I can't stop at this chapter, so I'm moving. Forgive me for moving quick because... I don't want us to be. All right, now that we're all bumming, let's all just pray and go home miserable. Well, it, it picks up, but then there's this other guy. Now, verse 15 it says that. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel, remember him? That's David's counselor, the granddaughter or the grandfather of, um, the grandfather of, uh, of Bet-sheba. It says Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with them. And so it was when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, came. Remember, he's trying to slip into this thing to defeat Ahithophel. He came to Absalom. Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? I mean, Absalom knows that this was one of David's close friends. Why did you not go with your friend? Hushai said to Absalom, Oh, no, no, no. But whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, that's his I will be. And with him I will remain. Furthermore, well, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. Apparently it worked. Ahithophel said, or Absalom said to Ahithophel, well, give advice of what we should do then. Remember, this is the guy that is declared war on David. Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father and the hands of those who are with you will be strong. So they, pitched a, so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if he had required, uh, inquired of an oracle of God. So was the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Now, interesting, the third guy Ahithophel gives this counsel to file the house. Did you notice that? The first guy exposes the house to seize its goods. The second guy has his wife torn from him, or in essence, curses because a wife was torn from her husband. And then the third guy defiles the house. It's exactly, by the way, what Nathaniel said would happen. But I look at this and I realize, this is completely the comeuppance of what David had sowed. And if we left here, all we would be doing is freaking out Because we'd be fearful. Well, what about all those horrible things? No, this is good news. The book of Proverbs tells us, by the way, whoever seeks to cover their sin will never prosper. But he who forsakes and confesses it will find mercy. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, not justify it or try to tell God how maybe it wasn't as bad, we don't have to convince God of any of that. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just not only to forgive our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the sight of God, it'll be as if it never happened. As far as east is from west, he blots it out as if it never lived. Well, David's in a really rough spot now. David has a few of these guys, but the guys that I remind you that were kind of his aces in the hole two chapters ago are all in Jerusalem. They're moles, right? So they're not with David at this moment, but he has the 600 men that came from Gath with him. And then he's got these three nuts that are all making his life more miserable. Ziba, and then this guy Shemai that's still cursing him and throwing stones at him and all the guys. And then Ahithophel, clearly who is was now in Jerusalem trying to make it worse. And so Absalom sleeps with all of David's concubines on the roof to say, well, but there is an important note in that. By Absalom doing that, what that says is he's completely sold out to his cause. Notice, and what Ahithophel says is, if they see you that sold out, that you're not afraid, hear me, they see that you're not afraid to be hated. If they see that you are so sold out, you are not afraid to be hated, it will strengthen the hands of those who are with you. Listen, if you are so committed that they see that you are not afraid to be hated. It will strengthen the hands of those that are with you. Why is Christianity right now in our country lacking? Because there are not people who are willing to stand strong enough for Jesus that were willing to be hated. Now, I'm not talking about make people hate you. Let's face it, people are going to hate you no matter who you are. By your color, by your age, by your status, by whatever. Your young, old people might hate you. you. know, Your old, young people might hate you. It doesn't matter who you are, someone's not going to like you. And there's nothing you can, because you breathe. But are you willing to stand for Jesus in such a way that you know that those who hate God are going to have a problem with it? Because when that happens, it strengthens the hands of those that are with you. And Ahithophel knew that. Okay, walk with me through one more chapter, would you please? 17. And actually, well, let's see. Moreover, Hithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men. I'll arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee and I'll strike only the king. Then I'll bring back all the people with you. When I return, accept the man whom you seek and all the people will be at peace. And the seeing pleased Absalom now, there's the battle. I remind you, you've got this guy who obviously hates David and then you've got Hushai the plant. Are you guys with, have I lost you? Are you guys with me on this? So there's going to be a battle between the two councils. Hushai's in a rough place because he realizes Ab, this guy's, I think the fellow's council is going to work. In other words, David's already exhausted. He's been crying. He's had a rough day. He's got Mr. Kersi Stone Thrower, we've got the liar Ziba. This is a rough day for him. He's like, man, he is so vulnerable. Let's get him now while he's weak. Let's get out there. And I tell you, we won't even have to kill everyone. I'll just kill him, and all the other people will come in. will have the, the no, there'll be no casualties, no collateral damage. I'll just get him. And Hushai knows this is bad. At this moment, if if Absalom goes with this, David's a dead man. But Absalom says in verse 5, Now Hushai the archite also, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let's hear what he has to say. Let's get a second opinion. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Well, I has the fellow spoken in this matter. This is his idea. Shall we do what he says? If not, speak up. Hushai says to Absalom, Now remember, he can't just say, Let's not get him at all. I mean, obviously that would make you suspicious. Absalom is already bloodlusting over his father. So says, and so Hushai has to play this off as a way to make it sound like there's a better victory than the one Ahithophel is offering. So verse 7, Hushai says to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. For, said for, said Hushai, you know your father and his men, they're mighty men, and they're enraged in their mind like a bear robbed of his cubs in the field. And your father's like a man of war. And it says, he will not camp with the people. So you want to try to find him among the people? He's not going to be there. Surely by now he's hidden in some pit or in some other place and it'll be that when some of those are overthrown at the first, that whoever hears it will say, oh, look at their slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. You really think that that's going to build a momentum for you? You are going to go and do this? These guys start taking your guys down. You're going to lose all your people. And even he who is was valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore... Let me give you advice. I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba. And by the way, Dan is the farthest north, Beersheba is the farthest south. Like the sand that is on the sea in multitude. And that you go to battle in person. Go fight him yourself. Don't just send people. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found. And, he will not, and, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. In other words, get everyone and get the whole army and let's just take him down with everyone. Now, that sounds like a pretty rough plan, except what that does is it buys David time. Because to gather everybody is going to take some time. And that's exactly the only thing Hishai can, can play. He's just like, he needs to get David out. So in order to get David out, this is what he needs to do. Let's buy some time, get everybody. Imagine how hard that would be. Well... So it says, We'll follow them like the dew falls on the ground. There shall not be left one of them. Verse 13, Moreover, if he's withdrawn into the city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to the city, will pull it into the river until there's not one stone left upon another. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, "No, oh, I like the advice of Ishai, brother. The advice of Ishai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. In the end of it all, though Absalom is trying to kill his father, the person he's really fighting against is God. Then Ishai said to Zadok the, and Abiathar the priests, okay, remember, these are his moles, thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore, go tell David, go quickly and tell David, saying, don't spend the night in the plains and in the wilderness, speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Jonathan and Ahimaaz, those are the sons of the priests, Staden and Rogel, but they dared not be seen coming into the city. A female servant would come and tell him. Then they would go and tell King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them, told Absalom. But both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Bahurim. Remember Bahurim, who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. Then the woman took it and spread the covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it, and the king was not — I'm sorry, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, well, where is Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, they have gone over to the water brook. And when they have searched, they couldn't find him. She took a hole in the ground, that was their well, covered in something solid and then put grain over it so it just looked like ground. So they were hidden in a hole in the ground. So it came to pass when they had departed, that they came up, took him out of the well. They went and told David, said to David, arise, cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light not one of them was left who had gone over the Jordan. Now Ahithophel saw that his vice was not followed, he saddled his donkey, arose, and went to the house went to went home to his house, to his city, then he put his household in order, and hanged himself, and died. He was buried in his father's tomb. Boy, I don't know about you, but if someone doesn't take my advice, well, not my plan. Anyways, this is how we end it, because this is where at least it goes encouraging. David has these three guys, can I remind you? Ziba, invade the house to take its goods. Shimei who curses him in a place where a man had his wife taken from him. And then ultimately, Ahithophel, defile the house. And David now has fled. Now he knows his son is gathering all of an army to kill him, so David has to cross over the Jordan now to today, the country of Jordan. It'd be easy to remember, cross the Jordan, to go to Jordan. And we read in verse 24, our last few verses, David went to Mahanaim. Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. First of all, David went to a place called Mahanaim. It's an interesting thing, by the way. The town means, or the name, Mahanaim, Im is always plural, means double camp or two camps. It was because Jacob, back in Genesis 32, if you're familiar with Jacob, the man who would become Israel, who would have 12 sons, who would become the 12 tribes of Israel, for whom the land is named. Jacob knows his brothers trying to kill him. But Jacob has just said goodbye to his rip-off uncle named Laban. Laban, by the way, means whitey for what it's worth. And he's got, you know, the man's daughters with him, who, by the way, are his wives. And as he's fleeing from all of this, and he said goodbye to this thing, he's expecting a lethal encounter from a relative. He meets angels who minister to him. And because of that, Jacob says, this is, this is two camps. This is clearly man's camp, but it's also God's camp. Here God met me in a place of fear, in a place of danger, In a place where my life is expected of me. Do you follow me on that? The reason I say that is the last few verses are exactly the same situation, but for David. He's fleeing a relative, his son, who wants him dead. David is now in a place where he's in a bad way. Life is rough. And before we even grab these last couple verses, well what about you? Think about some of the darkest times you've gone through where you felt helpless. Like no matter what strength you mustered up personally, you just weren't going to get out of it that way. No matter how cute or smart or whatever you have going for you, you get to this point where you just feel like I'm not going to get past this. We have the term we use in California, third wave. Actually, it's a Hawaiian term. But it comes from when you're surfing in the first. If you're trying to surf, and the first wave pitches you. In other words, you're trying to ride down the wave, but it breaks too fast and it throws you. It's called pearl diving. You get pearled. It's thrown. Well, you know what's going to happen in the second wave. The first wave kind of takes you down, and you come up for air, and the second wave goes boom. And when that second wave comes down on you like that, you know at this point this is going to be real work. I mean, the first one, you kind of know, I'm going to float to the surface. That's what we do. You get hit. It's part of what it comes, comes with surfing. But when that second wave hits you, you know, the only way I'm going to get up from this, it's going to take effort. It's going to take work. I can't just float up. Now I have to give a conscious effort to really make it happen. But when you come up for that, come up for air after that second wave, and a third wave comes and hits you, everything changes. Because when that third wave comes, it isn't even more like you can actually just feel the impact, all you know is you feel the weight and it is dragging you to the bottom of the sea. And every time something like that happens, you say to yourself, am I going to live through this? And I'm not a melodramatic person. I'm not like, well, this is probably the end of the world. this It's one of those moments where you realize this is how people die. And there are people who don't make it from the third wave. And at that point you realize it is going to take everything I've got. And I still don't know if I'm going to live through this. The second one, you could say, I'm going to give it everything I got. I think I'll make it too. But that third one, now you realize, unless God pulls me up, I'm not going to make this. Well, that doesn't, you don't have to surf to get that because it happens in life, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes you just get blindsided by something and it just turns you into a really crabby person. At that moment, you're just like, you know, you really don't want to hang out with me for a while. This is just weird when you feel like you're kind of getting past it for a moment and then BAM! The next thing hits you at that point you're like, whoa, 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 whoa hey, and there's a point of you that's kind of going hey, 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 that's not fair that's not fair at this moment, there should be a bell ringing, so I should be able to get back to my corner and catch my breath at least, come on, this is not fair but somewhere in it, while you're still complaining about it, then you get the and at this point you're like, I don't even know if I'm going to make this now and at a moment like that, you cry out to God, even if you're the strongest, David is. It is amazing how a foxhole confession comes out of you at a moment like that, and you're like, God, this is going to happen. It's going to have to happen now. And that's what Jacob experienced in Genesis 32. But that's what David is experiencing here. But it is amazing how God always seems to meet you at that third wave. Sometimes I really believe the Lord allows that third wave, because what he really wants he really wants is for you to cry out to him. He doesn't want the credit for helping you. He wants the credit for saving you because truth be told, he really does save us. He doesn't just kind of give us a little nudge up to the surface. Without God, we are completely dead. So David is in this place Well, let's face it, He now all of Israel is about to take him down but the 600 guys he's got with him. And David goes to a place that has a history for God meeting people in a really rough spot. By the way, for what it's worth, in Joshua 21, 38, it is also a city of refuge, a place where a guy who is, in essence, manslaughter, accidentally kills someone, can flee from the vengeance of the avenging member of their family. But David is not a manslaughterer; He's a murderer. There's a very different story here. But what's interesting is that this was the place, the last time we saw it was in 2 Samuel chapter 2, when after Saul died, David's opponent they tried to take one of his sons and make him king in his place. A guy named Ishbosheth. But which by the way, his name means man of shame, and they did it here. And it is here where a false king takes his throne, where a guy that is really helpless receives refreshment, and that's exactly the situation playing at now. So let's see how it plays out, and let's close this. David went to Mahanim, Absalom crossed over. Verse 25, Absalom made Amasa, king, captain of the army instead of Joab. The Samasa was the son of a man whose name was Yithra, an Israelite, who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nachash, the son of Zubiah, Joab's mother. So in other words, it was all on the... It was actually, this guy is in essence, a relative of David's commander. Commanders, him and his brothers. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Now, verse 27, it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the people of Ammon Nahir Mahir, the son of Amiel from Lodebar and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogelim brought beds of raisins earthen vessels and wheat barley and flour parched grain and beans lentils cheeseburgers pizza Well, you get the idea, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, cheese from the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. And they said, people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now, this is something David didn't expect. There's nowhere where David said, where is Barzillai? As a matter of fact, Barzillai only shows up here and in another chapter. Uh, This is the first time we meet him. But hear me on this, please. Please be patient. We have a few minutes left and we'll close. But hear me on this. The first guy that shows up here seems to be a guy named Shobi. Do you see that? The guy Shobi, by the way, means transporter. A guy who, by the way, will move you from one place to another. David really could use that in a moment like this. Hey, in one of those moments where no matter where you go, life is really rough, it isn't going to be about your location on the outside, is it? It's about where your heart is. And Shobi's one of these guys. But what's interesting is he's the son of Nahash, the Ammonite king, who happens to be then brother of that king's son. That would make sense name Chanun. Why is that important? Because this whole thing started back in 2 Samuel 10 when the kings were supposed to go out to battle in chapter 11 and David didn't go to battle but instead he wound up with Bathsheba. Well, the battle he was supposed to go to was the battle from the chapter prior when a king dies in Ammon Nimnachash, and Nechash's son Chanun reigns in his place. I would call him Chanun the Paranoid. And what happened is David sent kindness to the guy. And some of you are familiar. You were here when it, when we went to it. Where he's like, you know, I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. I want you to know we were kind of friends by this point, And I would really like to be friends with you. And so he sends a couple guys with some kindness. And the guy, the son, now now king, Hanun says, you know, he gets counsel from the young men. And they're like, these guys are actually spying out your land. You need to let them, you know, you need to teach them a lesson. So these guys that were actually trying to be kind get their faces half shaved and they cut off their clothes at the buttocks so these guys have to run back naked half bearded so they're like half hipster and completely immodest and I mean they've been shamed and at that point David's like okay this means war the point of all that was is that this Hanun this guy who actually then does all of that to these guys has a brother so when David and his men go and fight them ultimately and that guy is is taken down His brother comes in his place. Isn't that the strangest guy to show up to help David? I mean, your brother, in essence, started a war. But I kind of get the idea that, remember, David really meant the very best. Have you ever done something where you really tried to bless someone, but then they kind of turn around and, and look at you like you actually did something really awful by doing it? And you're like, man, I was really trying to help. I was really trying to serve you. I was really trying to encourage you. And this is what came out of it. Well, you need to know, it doesn't go without bearing fruit. Sooner or later, somewhere down the line, it's going to bear fruit. Not the weirdness, the kindness. And here, Shobi is coming out. And this this is the reason I'm saying, remember those three guys that came at David? Well, now there's three guys that come at David because he's planted good things. And one is, he did an act of kindness for a guy that was bereaving because his dad died, who took David completely wrong. But apparently the brother, on the other hand, said, you know, you're, you're off your nut. David's actually being really cool. And he shows up now and he's like, David, let me help you with this. Isn't that cool? Because at a moment like this, isn't it nice to see fruit from something you did you've probably forgotten about by now? But he also takes him before Batsheva to that place where David actually was on the verge of doing something stupid, where he was still had hope there. Then there's the second guy. And this is one of my favorites. Mahir. Mahir, by the way, means swapper, like traitor, but not traitor like a guy who turns his back on you. A guy who's like, you know what, I'll take your thing and you can have my thing. Which, by the way, you're aware that Jesus is such a person. He takes all of our filth and our guilt and he gives us his innocence. That's the whole message of the cross. And Mahir, by the way, what we do know about the guy is that his name is Mahir. That's what it says here. And it says um, as well that he lives in a, he's the son of Amiel, and then he's in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar, by the way, lo means no. It literally means, in essence, no future or no pasture. That's the idea. But what's interesting is this guy's shown up before, too. Well, where this guy shows up is, if you remember the story where David went to help that poor lame kid, the grandson of Saul, and Ziba, the guy that went after him, the, the guy who then lies about his household, Mephibosheth, the kind, the kid who was lame in his feet. When David says, "Is there someone I can show kindness to?" and they're like, "Well, there is this guy, this kid. He, you know, he's a grandson of David. He's the son of Jonathan, his son." And David's like, "Well, well, where is he that I can go and get him?" And this is what it says in 2 Samuel nine. So you know I'm not making this up. Verse three, the king said. Is there still not someone of the household of Saul in whom I may show kindness to God? Ziba, I remind you, that was his servant, said to the king, there's still the son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And maybe Ziba thought if he volunteered this kid that Ziba would get a reward instead of having to look after his stuff. So the king said to him, well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mahir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. In other words, this guy... This kid who is lame in his feet, the grandson of Saul, someone shows up at the house where he's staying, at this guy, Mechir, and he says, hey, the king would like to see this guy. Now, traditionally, a king would kill all of the family of his predecessor, but not this guy. David has adopted him instead. He's shown kindness to him. And somewhere down the line, Mechir, says, well, that just doesn't happen. And who's the second guy that shows up to bless David? Mechir, the guy whose household Mephibosheth was living in. Isn't that a pretty radical thought? Like somewhere he's like, you know, I remember. So this was a guy, if you think about it, who wasn't directly granted David's kindness. He just saw the kindness of David upon another person in his household. In the first case, the person was the recipient of kindness, if you will. But the second case, he was somebody that observed that kindness. And you look and he goes, you know, this guy's in a bad way. We really need to reach out to him right now. Because, man, when I saw him do... I think we should really bless him. And then we have our last guy here. Barzalai. Barzalai, by the way, means iron-hearted. Who doesn't love a guy that's iron-hearted as long as it's for a good thing? What we do read, by the way, by chapter 19 is he's 80 years old. He's an old guy, but he's very wealthy. And so somewhere in all of this, he shows up. He seems to live in the area of Jordan. So he shows up with these other two guys. And they're like, we want to give you, you know, we want to take care of you, king, because obviously this is a really rough time for you. And I remind you, it wasn't but a thousand plus years before this, you know, that it was actually Jacob who was actually being ministered by angels. And God says, you know, this guy's in a bad way. You guys, let's take care of him. And now here's David. And David could look and say, this guy's in a bad way. Let's take care of him. And he's like, but it would be one thing if three total strangers showed up, right? It would still be cool. If people were like, hey, by the way, you look like you're having a hard day. Here, have my Oyster card. I mean, it would still be cool. But it's another thing when you could kind of trace back because I think David's really haunted by his memories at this moment. And God's redeeming them. God's going, you know, but remember this moment? It isn't like everything you did was horrible. Remember when you did this simple, seemingly insignificant act of kindness? I didn't forget about that. And so as a result of that, I just want you to know I want to bless you, but I'm going to bless you with someone whose life you have touched. I can tell you there have been times where, you know, people get crazy and things get wild and political and all this stuff that can happen. The government says, you know, you don't belong here, get out and all those crazy things. And at moments like that, sometimes what the Lord has done in our lives is we get this call or this email or whatever, a text from someone that's like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but 15 years ago, I went to a concert you did. I gave my life to Jesus, and now I'm a pastor of a church, and I just want to thank you. And it's a moment like that, you're like, God, thank you. A stranger would be cool, but this is even cooler. Because you remind me that it's not just the bad stuff you sow that reaps. So look, as we go to prayer tonight, I just want to pray for you and I want to pray for me. Now, I don't know, maybe this is where you're at right now and the Lord dragged you in here to hear this. And you don't even want to hear it because you don't want to be reminded of how horrible the moment is for you. But I'm here to let you know that even from this moment, we choose what we sell. And in a moment like this, in our surrender to the living God and in our trust in Him, even if we don't understand the circumstances, the kindness that He bears forth from us to others, is never forgotten and if God who once we come to him keeps no record of our wrongs but still has a record of our deeds well then clearly the deeds that he's collected at this point are not deeds we've done that are wrong when we stand before him the only thing that's left are the rewards that God has for a life that has lived with him even if they were brief moments my, my suggestion is live the whole life that way and watch what God does Our God is our God of all comfort, and He knows when to meet you at the place where you go, Wow, this is actually a place of two camps. That's my prayer here that this is two cafes. This is a cafe at the moment where we gather as human beings, but it's a cafe where God comes and meets us. And so, this is a place where He comes to deliver you that encouragement and tell you, You're going to make it through this. He's going to take you through this. And on the other side, you are going to see how our God is the God who rescues us from every third wave. And I know that because the most impossible circumstance is death. And my Savior took your sin and filth and all of your failures and mine too, put him on his shoulders and tied on a cross because he loves you. When you were his enemy, he did that. And when you go, well, he's dead, that's the end of that. Jesus is like, that's actually the first half of the story when he rose again, he says, I have a brand new life now where all that stuff is buried. And when we say yes to Jesus, all of our past is buried with him before his eyes. And he's got a whole new person for us. So why drag that stuff anymore? So tonight, I just want to pray, have you accepted that gift of Jesus? Because if you haven't, tonight is the night to say yes. And let the God of comfort meet you. But if you have said yes, and you're still struggling, can I just say, Realize we've gone through now more chapters than anything we've ever gone through on a night like this. He really wants to tell you that he has comfort for you if you're willing to seek him. There's nothing impossible for God. Will you pray with me? Lord, right now I want to pray for, first of all, those who have made claim to you as our Savior and Lord. And I pray tonight, in this room, right now, God, that you would meet us here right now and and show us, Lord, how you are a God who takes the impossible and makes it possible. You call things out of nothing. You raise the dead. There is nothing too difficult for you. And God, there are certainly circumstances in our life that are way too big for us, way too heavy, and we are powerless over them, in and of ourselves. God, we are not in a place where we're asking for your help. We are asking for your rescue. We are asking God for you to meet us here and and Lord, show us that even if the circumstances may not immediately change around us, you could still be our peace in the midst of it. Because the difference between you and anything else is that the circumstances don't have to change or don't have to even get better for us to be better. We just need to rest and the God who is our refuge, our ever-present help in a time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the mountains shake, crumble and the earth be shaken, the mountains be crumble into the sea, we are not going to fear because you're our refuge. And we're going to rest there. But God, we confess to you that there are times where we take our eyes off of you and we look at the boisterous wind and waves and we think like Peter. But at that moment, we're not asking God strengthen us so we can swim better. We cry, God, help. So for anyone in this room right now, God, who is just feeling like they're drowning, if they're drowning right now, Lord, overcome them hear their cry for help, the cry for rescue. And show up, Lord. Your scripture says in Second Chronicles that your eyes span the earth seeking to show yourself strong to those whose hearts are loyal to you. Show yourself strong, God, I pray. And here in this room, or at the sound of this voice, if you're not sure if you've ever said yes to Jesus, his gift on the cross for you, His resurrection to give you new life. Or you're sure you haven't. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree with this prayer at the end, I ask you to give a consonant, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I am a sinner. I I, I I've done so much wrong. And because of that, I stand guilty before you. But that doesn't scare you and it doesn't make anything impossible but what it does make isn't foolish for me to assume that I could stand before you in my own merit and think it's enough but you haven't asked that what you've asked is us to accept the payment you made at the cross when all of our sin and shame and filth and regret and all of that was laid upon your son father who willingly chose the cross to pay for it all if he's really willing to pay then why should I I openly accept the fact that he took my payment but just like scripture promised not only did he die for my sins and was buried but also on the third day rose again to offer me a new life as my resurrected Lord and I say yes not just to his payment but also to his Lordship and I say now be the architect of my reinvention make me someone so different from that Someone who brings you joy and delight. And so meet me here, please, in my darkest moment. And be my life and my hope as I give myself to you in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, in doing so, I ask you simply to say, Amen. God, you've heard our amens. You've heard our prayers. Tonight, solidify that in our hearts. Make us iron hearted in that sense. And may we recognize that nothing that you do through us is ever for naught. So Lord, now set our hands to sowing in the way you ordained. And we trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen.